everybody. Welcome to another episode of Poem Peeps. Today we're bringing you another episode in our top consult series and one that we think you'll find really useful comes up quite a bit on the service. We're excited to be joined today by several experts in the field and we'll be discussing the diagnosis and management of some conditions that can cause hypoxemia in patients with cirrhosis and, and specifically focusing on some hepatopulmonary syndrome and portopulmonary hypertension. Monty, always great to be back with you. Love to be back on the show. How's it going? Hey, Farf. Always a highlight of my week is when we get to record. And as you said, excited to be here today with our panel of guests and a topic I think will be really relevant, especially when on inpatient pulmonary consults. I agree. Uh, just to introduce myself, I'm Tess. I'm an internal medicine resident at Beth Israel. Um, and we're fortunate to be joined by two faculty experts today. First, I would like to introduce Dr. Michael Curry. Michael is an associate professor of medicine at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and section chief of the hepatology department. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Hey, thank you. It's exciting to do something like this. Next, I would like to introduce Dr. Tyler Peck. Tyler is an instructor in medicine at Beth Israel with a special focus in pulmonary hypertension. Thanks for coming on, Tyler. Great. Hi, I'm Tyler. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Before we go on, Tess, we didn't do your full introduction. You're also associate editor at Poem Peeps, uh, and we love having you on the team. Your second episode that you've uh, conceived of for us, so we're pumped. Great. Thanks so much, Tyler, Michael, and Tess. Agree with Firth. Great to have you back. And before we get started, we'll just do a quick disclaimer. Just as a reminder, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. The case we'll present is HIPAA compliant and may have changed some of the details to protect the privacy of our patient. Farf, let's get started. So we have a 60-year-old man with alcohol-related cirrhosis, now in remission from his alcohol use for greater than six months who was admitted to the hospital with progressively worsening dyspnea on the exertion for the past several months. This has progressed to the point where he's also now dyspneic at rest, which is why I decided to come in. On further questioning, it is found that he's been compliant with his diuretic regimen. He's not noticed any peripheral edema or increased abdominal girth. Interestingly, he does note that his dyspnea is a, a bit better when he gets into bed to go to sleep at night. His emission sh vitals show that he's afebrile, normotensive, He's slightly tachypneic with a respiratory rate of 20, uh, breathing ambient air, and an O2 saturation of 89%. He's not using any oxygen at baseline. Our colleagues in the ED obtained a chest x-ray, which per our read was only notable for some subtle increased interstitial markings at the bases uh, and no other notable findings. So essentially, we have a pretty undifferentiated case of a patient with cirrhosis presenting with hypoxemia. So Tess, do you have a framework for dyspnea and hypoxemia in a patient with advanced liver disease? There's so many potential causes for dyspnea in a cirrhotic. I find it helpful to organize the potential etiologies into big buckets. My big buckets include airway, parenchyma, diaphragm, vascular, and non-pulmonary causes of dyspnea. For my airway category, common causes of dyspnea in patients with chronic liver disease would include asthma and COPD, similar to the general population. I was surprised to learn, however, when, learn, uh, when preparing for this episode that one randomized control trial that specifically compared the incidence of COPD in patients with and without liver disease found that an odds ratio of 2.1 um, for patients with liver disease. 
Uh, for my parenchyma bucket, I first think of conditions that affect both lungs and liver, like cystic fibrosis and alpha-1 antitrypsin, as well as sequelae of chronic liver disease like pneumonia, for example, for patients with hepatic encephalopathy have repeated aspiration events, but also um, patients with as- advanced liver disease have immune dysfunction as well, leading them to have in pneumonia as well. Now, for diaphragm, I think of hepatic hydrothorax, ascites, and even decreased diaphragmatic excursion due to hepatomegaly. Vascular causes would include hepatopulmonary syndrome and portopulmonary hypertension. And lastly, non-pulmonary causes would include things like anemia and deconditioning, which we see so frequently in our liver patients, as well as any cardiac etiologies. Awesome, Tess. Thanks so much for providing that framework. And I think that's really great to look at those five big buckets. So again, you said airway, parenchyma, diaphragm, vascular, as well as non-pulmonary when approaching a patient such as ours today. And Michael, I know you must see this all the time. I wanted to ask if there's anything else that you would want to add about your approach to hypoxemia in a patient with known cirrhosis? I think Tess has done a wonderful job in breaking this down, and it's really important to sort of think of buckets to put these populations of patients into because it really brings out other potential causes as you think through the buckets. You know, there's one other situation that I would add to this, and that is in our patients who have immune-mediated liver diseases, such as primary biliary cholangitis, there's a certain percentage of those patients who can have an interstitial lung disease as well. Um, So that's just one other thing to think about in terms of parenchymal liver injury. I see it there under the bucket, but it's also something to think about in those with autoimmune conditions. Oh, that's awesome. I feel like I've had one or two of these really tricky cases of uh, undifferentiated parenchymal lung disease, and then we find out later that they have IBD and PSC, and it's a very uh, interesting diagnosis to get. Thank you for adding that. So I think we have a pretty solid framework. Thanks, Tess. Uh, Monty, obviously, you've been on Pone Consults all the time. Uh, What kind of tests do you think we should get to start narrowing this down? Yeah, thanks, Farf. And I think our patient is coming in so undifferentiated. I know in a couple of episodes, we said that this is really important where we try to put on our our thinking hats and, and try to figure out and think of all the etiologies. So I would really start with a broad initial workup. So definitely would include a full set of basic lab work, including a comprehensive panel, as well as a CBC. Um, I would get COAGs as well. And in addition, would get an ABG. Given the unimpressive chest x-ray test that you mentioned would rule out parenchymal disease and a hydrothorax according to the framework that you provided us, I would definitely consider getting a high-resolution CT as well as a TTE with a bubble study to evaluate for any shunt physiology. Awesome. Asking you shall receive. We have a CBC returned stable from his last set of labs six months ago. He does have known mild anemia and thrombocytopenia in the setting of his cirrhosis. He does get an ABG. Uh, he's breathing on ambient air. His pH 7.34. PaCO2 was 40 at that time. The PaO2 of 60, uh, consistent with his O2 set. Uh, he had a high-resolution CT scan, uh, which we'll try to get some pictures of uh, a representative image, but it shows dilated peripheral pulmonary vessels and an increased pulmonary artery to bronchus ratio. So maybe a little bit of dilated pulmonary arteries compared to distal airways with minimal parenchymal findings. The TTE does demonstrate a delayed appearance of bubbles uh, going from right to left atrium. Uh, After three to eight heartbeats, their first appearance bubbles in the left atrium, indicative of an intrapulmonary right to left shunt. Tyler, I I know that you look at echoes all the time because we sit next to each other and you often pull them up and I'm often asking you questions about them. But could you walk us through a bubble study and sort of how do we interpret this appearance of bubbles after three to eight heartbeats? 
Sure. Yeah, bubble studies performed with echo, which we also call contrast echocardiography, include injection of agitated saline, which creates air microbubbles in the injectate fluid so that the echo enhances, so it shows up in the heart chambers after administration. Um, in normal subjects, these microbubbles would be seen in the right heart and then would flow into the pulmonary circulation where they are stopped and they don't return to the left side of the heart. However, in patients with right to left shunting, these bubbles can pass into the left side of the heart. If the bubbles show up early, meaning fewer than four cycles, this indicates an intracardiac shunt. Um, those occurring after four be beats indicate an intrapulmonary shunt. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tyler. And I, I feel like sometimes I forget, you know, what number do I focus on for intrapulmonary versus intracardiac shunting? But I think your number four, just remember we have four chambers in the heart, could definitely help us differentiate that. So I, I would say overall, we have a 60-year-old gentleman coming in with cirrhosis and hypoxemia and dyspnea are consistent with the intrapulmonary shunt on his echo. Uh, Tess, I want to just ask you, what do you think is going on with this patient and how are you framing him? Yeah, all the information we have so far is uh, really helpful. I would say the combination of the lack of parenchymal disease on his imaging with the finding of intrapulmonary vascular dilatations on his CT and the intrapulmonary right to left shunt on his echo as well as his history of platypnea, make me wonder if this man may have a diagnosis of hepatopulmonary syndrome. Michael, can you explain what hepatopulmonary syndrome, or HPS for short, is? Yes, yes, thank you. So hepatopulmonary syndrome is a condition of patients who have liver disease, and it results in intrapulmonary shunting. So um, I think one really important point about the echo uh, and I like to differentiate what hepatologists like to look for in an echo versus cardiologists. We like the echo done at rest. Um, we do not want the cardiologist to do a valsalva maneuver because by doing a valsalva maneuver, you're increasing the intrathoracic pressure, you're increasing your right ventricular pressures, and that might account for some individuals having early shunts. So hepatopulmonary syndrome is typically something that is seen in patients who have portal hypertension. Most commonly, cirrhosis is the cause of that portal hypertension, but the patient doesn't always have to have cirrhosis. As a consequence of this pulmonary, sorry, portal hypertension, our patients will develop a dilatation of pulmonary precapillary as well as capillary vessels, in addition to sometimes an increase in the absolute number of dilated vessels that are seen in the pulmonary circulation. Now, the pathophysiology for this is not clearly delineated, but it is thought to be due to an excess of nitric oxide. And this nitric oxide can either be caused by the portal circulation or potentially the pulmonary circulation in patients with advanced liver disease or just portal hypertension on its own. And there has also been a demonstration uh, that these individuals can also have an excess production of endothelin-1 as an alternative etiology to the dilatation of these intrapulmonary capillaries. We see hepatopulmonary syndrome in up to a third of our patients who are uh, coming towards liver transplantation because of end-stage liver disease. Um, there is no strong association between etiology of liver disease, gender, age, um, so it's hard to predict these individuals. As a consequence, um, we get uh, uh, oxygen saturations in all of our patients coming forward for liver transplantation. 
we frequently get arterial blood gas measurements because not uh, oxygen saturation is not terribly reliable in various uh, populations, uh, particularly those with darker skin uh, coloration. Um, and we will get cardiac echo in all patients, and in a fair percentage of those patients, we will get a bubble study done to try and determine if these patients have hepatopulmonary syndrome. That's amazing. So many, so many great tips there about things that we should do for cirrhotic patients, and definitely another episode coming about O2 saturations in patients with a darker skin tones. Huge topic that's coming up now. Thank you for pointing that out. We've heard a lot about HPS and Tess. You thought this patient uh, had it and had some great evidence about it. Can you tell us about how it's typically diagnosed and you know what's sort of confirming that for this patient? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a triad actually that makes up the diagnostic criteria for HPS. The triad consists of hypoxemia, pulmonary vascular dilatation, and liver disease. And the fact that our patient had those three um, is what made me arrive at this conclusion. Um, so to officially diagnose someone with HPS, you have to di um, demonstrate evidence for each component of the triad. For the oxygen defect, you have to demonstrate a partial pressure of oxygen less than 80 or an AA gradient greater than 15 on room air. Um, usually you just obtain this with an ABG. For evidence of pulmonary vascular dilatation, this is most commonly obtained with a bubble study on echo as seen in our case, but alternatively you could demonstrate this with abnormal uptake in the brain with radioactive lung perfusion scanning. Lastly, uh, the patient must show clinical evidence of portal hypertension. So that's the three diagnostic criteria. However, there's also two important clinical findings to mention that are specific to this condition and are what further tip me off about the patient in our case. They're called platypnea and orthodeoxia. Platypnea refers to the worsening of dyspnea when you sit upright and improves when lying flat. For our patient, that's why he felt better when he was lying in bed at night. Orthodeoxia similarly refers to oxygen desaturation associated with those maneuvers. Tyler, do you have any insights into why hypoxemia happens in these patients? Yeah, there are a few different mechanisms by which hepatopulmonary syndrome causes um, hypoxemia. And one of the most predominant mechanisms is VQ mismatch. So the ventilation perfusion mismatch is because of the increased blood flow through the dilations um, of blood vessels inside the pulmonary system. And so um, in those lung units, the alveolar ventilation is preserved, but there's not an interface for the blood to ex receive gas exchange as well. So this results in the passage of mixed venous blood into the pulmonary veins, thus causing hypoxemia. The other mechanism that we think about for causing hypoxemia in HPS is the diffusion impairments that is caused by the dilation of the blood vessels so that the blood that's in the middle of the um, blood vessel that's adjacent to the, the alveolar space is just further away and, and experiences a gas exchange impairment so that that blood moving through the center of that dilated capillary is unable to receive oxygen or participate in gas exchange in the same way. That's awesome. Thanks, Tyler. And I think it's great to like build on that, that great explanation to, to describe these findings that are so atypical, this orthodeoxia or platypnea are so signature of it because those dilatations that are preventing the uh, oxygen from and gas exchange from achieving efficiently are usually at the basis of the lungs. So when the patient stands and more blood is you know, directed in that direction, uh, they end up having worsening of their symptoms and worsening of the oxygenation because there's just a higher fraction 
fraction of their blood that's going in those uh, uh, towards those dilated vessels. And in the supine position, as it's redistributed, that improves. Uh, and they're seeing, you know, these findings are uh, very specific or, you know, almost entirely specific. There are other uh, diseases that cause this, um, although not ultimately sensitive. You know, so Michael talked about making sure we get these tests on everybody because only about 25% of the patients with HBS are going to have the platinum orthodeoxia that we classically describe. So Michael, now that we know more about this disease and we're pretty confident the patient had it, you said we look for this in, in a lot of you know your cirrhosis patients. So what do we do about it? You know, how does it play into their cirrhosis management and their ongoing prognosis and care? That's a great question. So unfortunately, there's not a whole lot we can do from a medical perspective other than support these patients and treat them symptomatically. Um, in terms of what we do and to manage their symptoms, we provide supplemental oxygen. And the addition of that supplemental oxygen is able to overcome some of that hypoxemia. Um, by giving higher concentrations of oxygen, you can improve a patient's uh, hypoxia levels. Um, so in terms of other management, there have been a number of treatments that have been tried. Um, nitric oxide inhibitors have been used, but not really with any great success. And there's really no uh, other good medical management that has been found to treat these patients. So some of these patients will be candidates for liver transplantation based on the degree of their liver cirrhosis and liver failure, portal hypertension and other complications from that. But these individuals can also qualify for liver transplant alone based on their diagnosis of hepatopulmonary syndrome. And it has been found that patients who have you know, moderately severe hepatopulmonary syndrome have a poor outcome just from their hepatopulmonary syndrome itself. And as you get worsening degrees of hypoxemia with, drop, with, with uh, lower levels of, of PaO2, uh, that mortality increases. Uh, so typically patients who have a pedopulmonary syndrome with a PaO2 of less than 60 will qualify for some priority on liver transplant waiting lists. Now there tends to be a, quite a narrow window because patients who have PaO2s of less than 50 uh, they tend to have more complicated post-operative courses. And certainly those who have a PO2 of less than 40 have a very difficult time recovering from this. And some of them actually don't recover at all. They have persistence of hypoxemia and can actually have bad post-transplant outcomes. So the sweet spot seems to be a uh, PO2 of between 40 and 60 for recovery from uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome after liver transplantation. Replacement of the liver results in improvement in the pathophysiology that actually led to the HPS in the beginning. These shunts don't, however, miraculously disappear, and these individuals can take several weeks or months to come off their supplemental oxygen after liver transplantation. Um, and if they were to get a recurrence of portal hypertension, either because of recurrence of cirrhosis in the graft, they can then manifest HPS symptoms all over again. Thank you so much, Michael. And I think we have a, a pretty good framework now for how to think of patients with hepatopulmonary syndrome. Okay, team. So I'm glad we have you all on the call still because we have another consult to go over together. And Firf and Tyler, I wish um, I shared an office with you too, and we can just talk about physiology all day. But we're going to move to our next case. So our patient is a 22-year-old female with a past medical history of cirrhosis in the setting of alpha-1 antitrypsin syndrome who is now presenting with several months of worsening dyspnea. On exam, she has bilateral one-plus pitting lower extremity edema up to the knees. And as part of her outpatient workup, she underwent a CT chest, which didn't show any parenchymal disease, but the radiologist did comment on 
right ventricular and pulmonary artery enlargement. She had an echo performed without bubble, but did demonstrate a pulmonary artery systolic pressure of 52 and a dilated right ventricle. Tyler, based on these echo findings, what are you thinking about this patient and this case so far? Yeah, um, this echo is really interesting. So the patient has clear evidence of pulmonary hypertension, um, in addition to the suggestive finding of the pulmonary artery enlargement on the CT imaging. So in pulmonary hypertension, the elevated PA pressure creates an increased afterload for the RV, um, which typically produces flow against a much lower afterload compared to the LV. When the pulmonary artery pressure rises, um, this increased load can lead to the RV dysfunction, which we see in this echo, either dilation, systolic dysfunction, which we read in the echo report as hypokinesis or both. So cirrhosis can be associated with pulmonary hypertension and RV strain by a few other mechanisms, including high output states. So for patients who have cirrhosis and have really low systemic vascular resistance, they can have really high cardiac output, which can be the primary driver of their pulmonary hypertension. And then these patients also can end up very volume overloaded, which can cause their pulmonary hypertension as well. But the most worrisome cause of pulmonary hypertension in the cirrhotic is portopulmonary hypertension, as we've described. Thanks so much for that. And what symptoms do you most commonly see in portopulmonary hypertension? So a lot of our patients who come to us with portopulmonary hypertension, at least in the early stages, have very few symptoms that are distinguishable from those with cirrhosis um, and volume overload, such as ascites and peripheral edema. Again, because of the fact that a lot of these individuals don't have symptoms until very late in their condition, most of our patients, at least who come to us for liver transplant evaluation, will undergo echocardiogram at their initial evaluation. And we typically perform echocardiogram on individuals who are on the transplant waiting list yearly so that we can measure the estimated pulmonary artery systolic pressure and determine which individuals have evidence of pulmonary hypertension. Um, and then they go forward from there with further workup. In patients who present to us with advanced symptoms of portopulmonary hypertension, these individuals will most commonly complain of fatigue. Um, they may sometimes complain of dizziness or lightheadedness. Some of them will have chest pressure, but that typically is only those who have advanced disease, and we want to try and capture patients before they get to that stage. Thank you, Michael. And, but for our patient who is presenting with dyspnea and exertion as well as lower extremity edema, I think that there may be some concern that she is presenting with portopulmonary hypertension. And Tyler, I know for our first case test mentioned some of the criteria to diagnose hepatopulmonary syndrome, but how would you go about diagnosing portopulmonary hypertension and any specific um, testing that listeners should be aware of? So portopulmonary hypertension falls firmly in WHO group one pulmonary hypertension. Um, and so similar to other forms of pulmonary arterial hypertension, when the right heart cath demonstrates a mean PA pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury at rest, the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure is equal to or less than 15 millimeters at rest. And if the PVR is greater than or equal to three Woods units, this is what we consider pulmonary hypertension, um, which includes a diagnosis of portopulmonary hypertension. For portopulmonary hypertension specifically, we're looking to also exclude alternate causes. Thanks so much, Tyler. Christina and Dave, can you tell us a bit about why portopulmonary hypertension develops? 
Sure. Thanks, Tess, for the question. And I think this is, I don't know if it's an easier or harder question, but I know that the, the cause of portopulmonary hypertension is not completely understood. Although numerous theories have been thought of, there is an imbalance of vasoconstrictive and vasodilatory mediators. So some substances, which would normally be metabolized by the liver, are able to reach the pulmonary circulation through portosystemic collaterals, as Dr. Curry mentioned earlier. And, you know, nitric oxide, as was alluded to, um, earlier as well in the in the show is one of the main mediators here. Two other things that I can think of are some patients may have a genetic predisposition, and the third is that there could be thromboembolism from the portal venous system. Or if anything else to add for this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that you summed it up well. I think there are two other main uh, drivers that I think of. You know, the first is this sort of hyperdynamic flow through the pulmonary circulation. So, you know, we know that cirrhosis can be a state of high cardiac output, uh, that they can have a low systemic SVR and a dilated sort of splanchnic uh, um, vasodilation and systemic circulation. And that high output flow going through the pulmonary arteries, it can be theorized can lead to sort of uh, remodeling and triggers for those pulmonary arteries to start having intimal hyperplasia and the type of signs we see on pulmonary hypertension. You know, this is kind of what happens with people with congenital heart disease. You know, their blood is just flowing in a loop and then we end up seeing this happen. I will say that this is a bit controversial because there's a lot of studies in animals that the pulmonary arteries should be able to handle this compliance if the RV and LV output is matched you know, significantly, which uh, what happens in cirrhosis. And, and a lot of patients with cirrhosis have high output, they don't all get portopulmonary hypertension. So this, is, this uh, mechanism, while it makes some physiologic sense, is not sort of confirmed. Um, and then finally, it wouldn't be like a good diagnostic of what's going on if we just didn't wave our hands and say inflammation. Um, you know, I think that there's some thought that there are inflammatory mediators that reach the pulmonary circulation similar to nitric oxide that happened in the state of cirrhosis. So going to, to our case, you know, our patient did have a right heart cath like, uh, like Tyler suggested they did. Uh, in that case, from that right heart cath, they had a PVR around four and a half wood units. The wedge was normal at seven. They had a PA pressure of uh, 36, you know, indicating that he did have a, a portal pulmonary hypertension type picture. Also did have a VQ scan that didn't show any evidence of chronic thromboembolic disease that could have been a cause to this, um, and uh, a broad serologic workup that sort of ruled out other causes. And as we know, even though had uh, that she had uh, alpha-1 antitrypsin, she had no parenchymal lung disease or hypoxemia that was thought to sort of drive this. So seemingly like she does have portal pulmonary hypertension. Thanks, guys. You know, something I'm wondering, Michael, is, you know, how does the presence of portal pulmonary hypertension influence your thinking about like, prognostic implications for cirrhotic patient? That's a great question, Tess. Um, you know, there's a few things we have to think about in patients with portopulmonary hypertension. We have to manage both the portal hypertension and then the pulmonary hypertension. Um, so in individuals who have portal hypertension, we will frequently use beta blockers to try and decrease a number of problems. It decreases the risks of first-time bleed from variceal hemorrhage. And it's also recently been shown that beta blockers actually decrease the risk of further decompensation in patients that have clinically significant portal hypertension. So you will frequently find a lot of patients with cirrhosis and clinically significant portal hypertension on beta blockers. And when they suddenly then develop pulmonary hypertension, we have to think about whether those beta blockers are effective or not. And what we don't want to do is decrease cardiac output in patients who have 
pulmonary hypertension because they're heavily dependent on their on their cardiac output to perfuse their coronary arteries. Uh, so one of the things to think about initially is at some point you're going to have to stop those beta blockers and you're going to have to manage the pulmonary hypertension like varices some other way, maybe by band ligation. Second thing we need to think about is how best to manage the pulmonary artery hypertension. And years ago, we didn't have very effective medications to treat pulmonary hypertension. Um, we have more, much more effective medications nowadays to manage this. So a lot of these patients will get started on pulmonary hypertension reduction therapy. Um, and we have to balance the pulmonary hypertension medicines with other complications that can occur, such as peripheral edema, hypotension in these individuals. We still consider liver transplantation for patients who have cirrhosis and portal hypertension who have now developed pulmonary hypertension. However, there is emerging data that we should only consider liver transplantation for in patients who have a liver indication for liver transplantation. What I mean by that is if they are child's A cirrhotic and you can control their pulmonary hypertension with pulmonary vasodilator therapy, then you should not necessarily resort to liver transplantation just to cure the pulmonary hypertension. Uh, they should have a liver indication to do that. And again, in this situation, UNUS will allow patients extra priority on the transplant waiting list if they have portopulmonary hypertension and have an indication for liver transplantation other than their pulmonary hypertension. And these individuals who have moderate or severe pulmonary hypertension documented on right heart cath, who are then treated with pulmonary vasodilator therapy to bring them back to a PAS, uh, sorry, a pulmonary artery pressure a mean pulmonary artery pressure of less than 35, they can qualify for additional exception points on the transplant waiting list so that they can be transplanted before they succumb to complications of either their portal hypertension or their pulmonary hypertension. Thanks, Michael. That was fascinating. Tyler, what do we do therapeutically for these patients? Fortunately, we have an abundance of drugs that we use for pulmonary hypertension in general. And so for patients with portal pulmonary hypertension, they're treated very similar to our all other patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, this includes the mainstays of pulmonary vasodilator therapy, anything from oral um, PDE5 inhibitors or um, endothelin receptor antagonists, all the way up to um, parenteral prostacyclin therapy um, for our most severe patients. That's great. Thank you both guys for that that review. I think it's just been really interesting. One thing that you know that seems is really interesting is that in some ways these conditions sort of seem like they would be opposite, right? Like so one is a dilation of the pulmonary circulation, the other is maybe a constriction or a high pressure in the pulmonary circulation. And actually I remember when I learned about this in med school residency, that's how they were framed. I, I remember a slide that had the spectrum and it had it on. But Michael, as you said, it's all consequences of portal hypertension that's happening from cirrhosis. And now I feel like that thinking has evolved. And I've certainly seen patients who have this dysfunctional vascular regulation associated with cirrhosis and actually have both conditions, you know, portal pulmonary hypertension and hepatopulmonary syndrome. So I'm just curious how you guys think about these now. Do you think of them as just two independent related conditions, just sort of dysregulation? I know we probably still have a lot of work to do in, in delving into the mechanisms a bit more. That's a wonderful question. I think of these two conditions as being on a spectrum and the clear hepatopulmonary syndrome being on one end of the spectrum and the clear portopulmonary hypertension being on the other end of the spectrum. And it's kind of like a reverse bell curve. 
you know, you have high prevalences of HPS in one and high prevalence of portal pulmonary hypertension in the other, but in the middle, there's a small percentage of patients that can have both conditions. And why that would occur, I truly don't know. I mean, we have patients who present to us with HPS and later on go on and develop portal pulmonary hypertension. And whether that's due to ischemia uh, that occurs because of the shunting and then intimal hyperplasia that occurs as a consequence of the ischemia, I can't say for certain. And we have the opposite that occurs. Patients present with pulmonary artery hypertension and then suddenly begin to evolve into becoming more hypoxemic and you do a bubble echo and now they suddenly are shunting. Whether that's, again, some sort of change in the physiology or whether it's due to our use of potent vasodilators that begins to open up, you know, these maybe channels that were pre-existing but not necessarily noticeable um, in the pulmonary, in the pre-capillary and capillary blood vessels, it's really hard to know. Um, I think there's an awful lot we need to learn about the pathophysiology of both of these conditions. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have great animal models to be able to study that in. Oh, I totally agree with Dr. Curry, and and these patients can very much have overlapping mechanisms. I think one important point to remember is that even for patients who have hepatopulmonary syndrome with dilated blood vessels in the pulmonary parenchymal bed, the uh, if they have concomitant portopulmonary hypertension, they still should be treated with pulmonary vasodilator therapy. It is not a contraindication to treatment of their pH if they have hepatopulmonary syndrome in, as well. Well, what a, a truly fantastic episode today. And thank you, Tess, for, for leading this for us. I think, as we all said, very interesting pathophysiology to think about for both disease process. With every show, we like to end uh, with a key learning point from each person. And for mine today, I'd like to actually go back to the beginning, just thinking about dyspnea and cirrhosis. And Tess, I really like the five big buckets that you said. You know, I know we spent most of the majority of time today talking about the vascular bucket, but other buckets to think about, you said, included airway, parenchyma, diaphragm, as well as non-pulmonary etiologies. And just framing that for every patient that you see with dyspnea in a cirrhotic patient so that nothing is missed. Farf, what about you? What's the takeaway point from today? Yeah, I have so many. I love this. This was great. I, I think um, I love that Dr. Curry's point that the bubble study is different than the typical one that we're doing sort of in the cardiology. There's no valsalva. It's at rest is how we're seeing this. Um, I liked thinking about uh, this just at the end, like that there is a spectrum, but we're really thinking of it as a reverse bell curve instead of a line. And then Tyler's point that just because you have a pulmonary syndrome, if you also have portopulmonary hypertension, that doesn't you know say that you can't get treatment. In fact, you probably should get treatment. Awesome. What about you? Um, yeah, I'd say my takeaway, I was really just thinking about all of the awesome pathophysiology behind these two different conditions, just mainly thinking about the mechanism behind hypoxemia and HPS and how like BQ mismatch is the predominant mechanism there. Yeah, there's a really great um, New England Journal of Medicine review. Um, it has There's a great figure in there that goes through all the different mechanisms of hypoxemia in HPS, and that really helped me think about the pathophys in that condition. Awesome. And we'll make sure to put the link to the New England Journal article. Cool. What about you? A takeaway from today? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the really important things of all these conditions is you have to have portal hypertension at the basis of all of this. You can't have portopulmonary hypertension without the portal hypertension. You can't have hepatopulmonary syndrome without the portal hypertension. So, you know, that's really important when thinking about those buckets uh, of hypoxemia in a, in a liver patient or a cirrhotic patient. 
Fantastic. And Tyler, we'll end with you today. What is a takeaway from um, today's time together? Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway for me is the idea that patients who have portopulmonary hypertension can also fall into a spectrum with hepatopulmonary syndrome as well, and that that is not a contraindication to them being treated with pulmonary vasodilator therapy. Also, as we're treating patients with portopulmonary hypertension, um, we do have to watch out for the overlap with um, high output states or volume overloaded states in cirrhosis, and as those things can worsen with pulmonary vasodilator therapy. And if I could add something else just in reply to Tyler's point, you know, uh, the treatment for portopulmonary hypertension has evolved. And while it is still difficult treatment, it has changed the life of a lot of our patients. Um, so liver transplantation is not the only thing that they can do to remain well. This has been a fantastic last 45 minutes. Tyler, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Uh, this episode was written by Tess Lichman. It was produced and edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.